from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Continuing in our study of marks of a disciple. What is it that makes a disciple a disciple? And we're going to be in Matthew 5, which you may know this morning is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me just, I just take these little opportunities just to point some things out to you. You probably already know, but I like to point them out anyway. Jesus never calls it the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you look, it gets the name Sermon on the Mount from your uninspired little notes in your Bible, section headings. Just remember, okay, I, just, I know I say this a lot, but they're not in there, all right? So when Matthew wrote the gospel, he did not, right before uh, chapter 5, write above five Sermon on the Mount, all right? Uh, whatever publishing company published your Bible, put that in there. All right, Jesus doesn't call it a sermon. It is not called a sermon here or in Luke. It simply says that Jesus began to teach. He is teaching. And we would, I mean, there's nothing wrong with calling it a sermon, just pointing it out to you. He is teaching. And the reason I want to, to draw your attention to that, because in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, The crowds came, they went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we look at what is happening in that, we need to understand very clearly that Jesus is teaching his disciples. The instructions that are given in the Sermon on the Mount are for believers, now, there may have been, and there probably was, people in the crowd who were not disciples of Christ. And so if they're hearing this, they're going to understand that this is what the followers of Jesus would look like. But as Jesus teaches on this and he tells the disciples, he says, Look, this is what you need to know. And as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, it is an entire sermon basically on the marks of a disciple of what a disciple should look like. Now, I am not going to use this to go through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. We already did that uh, several years ago. You can go back and, and, and listen to those sermons. They are on the website. But it's important to know that Jesus says, if you are my disciple, this is what your life is going to look like. This is what is going to mark you as one of my disciples disciples and he begins to teach them and he goes through the beatitudes and then he gets down to verse 13 and we're going to read verse 13 through 16 but we're only going to focus on the salt this morning it says you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I read all of that because we usually combine those two verses together and say, go be salt and go be light. This morning, though, I want us to just focus 
on salt. And then next week we will focus on light. So notice three things this morning. Number one, to be salt means that believers have influence in the world. Believers have influence in the world. I find it interesting, and if you read the study guide uh, to, to prepare for today, and just a reminder, you can go to the website and click on the study guide link, and you can see the sermon notes and, and study guide and sermon outline. Jesus calls us salt. It's such an odd thing to be called. You ever been called salt? I mean, it's, it's just really odd. But I bring that up because I want you to understand that I think sometimes we misquote this verse. Not, not on purpose, but just in the, in the way we talk. We say something to the effect of, oh, well, remember, you're called to be salt. That's not true. Right? To say that we're called to be salt kind of lends the, the implication that it's something that we work towards being. But that is not what Jesus says. His statement is emphatic. He says, you are salt. Not that you will be, not that you will become, but you already are. And when he says that, notice again, he doesn't do a whole lot of expounding on this. Do you notice how simple that is? He says, you are salt, don't lose your saltiness. Like, wait a minute, what? what? So it's obvious then that the listeners would have automatically known what Jesus meant. And what Jesus is talking about, quite frankly, is influence. Right? He's talking about the influence that believers have in the earth. Th think about salt for just a minute, right? Salt influences everything that it comes in contact with, doesn't it? Right? You sprinkle a little bit, or if you sprinkle too much, it, it, it influences. You put too much salt in your potatoes, and man... All you can taste is the salt. Salt influences the food. And Jesus says, just like salt, you're going to influence the world. He also tells us this. Notice the placement. Right? When you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, right? He goes through the Beatitudes. And he keeps going through them and says, blessed are the poor, or blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And there's a logic that is, that is flowing in these verses that I think sometimes we miss because we go through and we look at the Beatitudes. And again, they're, they're marks of a disciple, peaceful, uh, meek, peace, uh, poor in spirit. All the Beatitudes say that, that you're going to demonstrate this to the world, that you belong to Jesus. At the same time, when you read those verses... And you read and you go, all right, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. You might ask yourself the question, what type of influence could people who define themselves by those characteristics have? Right? We don't think of people who have made it or people who are heads of corporations or who are politicians or people who are actors, people who are famous as people who are meek. Who are, who are humble. Right? And so we look at that list of characteristics and maybe become a little cynical going, how are those people going to influence the world? Yet the logic continues because the last two Beatitudes, Jesus says, you're going to be blessed when you're persecuted. You're going to be blessed when others are going to revile you. 
You live that life, the, the beatitude life, being a peacemaker, meek, humble, hungering for righteousness, that people are going to see that, and they're actually, instead of going, this person has no influence in the earth, they're going to look at the influence that you have, and they're going to be mad at the influence that you have and the characteristics that you're, going to, that you're displaying. And they're actually going then to persecute you, to revile you, say all kinds of evil things about you, fault, you know, lie about you on the account of Christ and live in the life he has called you to live. So what then do you do when you're following Christ's commands to live that beatitude life? The world ends up reviling you. What then should your reaction be to the persecution and the lies and the falsehood about you? Well, the answer is in verse 13. You go be salt. You continue to influence the world even if your influence is not appreciated. It doesn't matter, Jesus was basically saying, right? You can, you can kind of see the cynicism and, and think through that. How in the world... Is this could be influential? And people then persecute me. And, and Jesus, I'm kind of skeptical about that. Verse 13, Jesus says, I'm not. You're going to continue to be salt. You're going to continue to influence the world. The influence you have is not diluted by the fact that the world doesn't want to hear it. You still have influence. And Jesus is making it clear that we keep exerting our influence as believers in the world. So how exactly do we do that? That's point number two. We exert our influence in the world. Again, Jesus just says that you're salt. How many different ways do y'all use salt? Most of us use salt in one way, do we not? We use it to cook. Anybody this week use salt in any other way other than to cook. I'm, I'm curious. I'm really asking. Anybody? Oh, there's always one, and it's Tracy. How did you use salt this week, Tracy? She cleaned, a pan. She cleaned Okay, she cleaned the pan with it. All right. The reason I ask that is, again, Jesus doesn't explain. He just says you're salt. So when we read that, we got to assume that the, re- the listeners had all kinds of things running through their mind, right? The one thing that we have running through our mind is we use it to cook. Now, there are other applications for salt, but the one that you would hear today, somebody says, you're salt, you're like, you, you how does that work with cooking? So what is Jesus telling us? How is he saying to exert our influence? Well, let me give you five things that I believe Jesus is calling us to do. Five ways to exert our influence. And this is the big one. The first one is preservative. Because I think this, this is the fundamental issue. And I think the other four flow from this one. All right, he's calling us to be a preservative agent in the world. Remember, y'all know this, they didn't have refrigerators back then. All right, they couldn't go to the store, buy a cut of meat, take it home, stick it in the fridge, and eat it two days later. They're in a hot uh, climate. They went out and they bought meat and set it out where there is no refrigeration. They can't eat it in three days. You put a piece of meat on your counter for three days. You're not going to want to eat it. It's nasty. It's putrid. You don't want to. How then could they eat meat? How could they eat something that is fresh one day, months later? Well, the the way that they did that was to preserve it. They would cover it in salt 
and cure it. Right? And as good Southerners, we understand that because we like country ham. Makes a fantastic biscuit, does it not? But the reason we can eat it is because it's been preserved in a whole lot of salt. The preservative prevents decay. The salt placed on the meat, on the fish, on the lamb, whatever, prevents the decay of the meat. It prevents it from rotting. Jesus is telling us, telling his believers, that we are to be a preservative in the world. Now that comes with two assumptions. The first one being that we live in a world in which we're in a state of decay. That sin, immorality, disregard for God's law increases. Right? If Jesus is saying, be a preservative, something in the world is decaying, something is going wrong. Now, when we look around the world today, I think we see that. I mean, the speed of decay in the past 20 years has just accelerated exponentially. I mean, we're, we're witnessing, I believe, in, in real time, a moral revolution. A quote by uh, Theo Hobson, he's an Anglican uh, scholar, talks about a moral reversal. Right? Moral reversal, moral revolution. And he states this, that there are three conditions that need to happen for there to be a moral reversal. Tell me if, just let me know if anything goes off in your mind. This is his quote. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. That's step one. Step two is what was universally celebrated is now condemned. Step three is those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Does that, I mean, as a believer in Christ, does that, do any alarm bells go off with that? That what once was condemned is now celebrated. What was once celebrated is now condemned. And now if you refuse to celebrate, you're going to be condemned. I mean, this, this, this is where we are. The NCAA, NCAA just agreed to let a Pennsylvania swimmer who was born a biological male compete in the NCAA finals as a female. He was 446 swimming in the men's, and he transitioned to be a female, and now he's the number one female singer, swimmer in the world, or in America. And you stand up and say, there's something really wrong with that? Because what was once universally condemned is now celebrated. What was celebrated is now condemned. And now if you refuse to accept that, you're condemned. Last week, Adele, the, the British singer, she was condemned. She won the 2022 Best Artist of the Year. And they, what they did was they, they took the best female and the best male and combined them to the best artist. And she makes this statement, which when you hear it, it's, it's, just, so, it's just an innocuous statement. She says, quote, I understand why the name of this award has been changed, but I really love being a woman and being a female artist. I don't, that's just kind of a benign statement. She was roundly criticized throughout social media, claiming that her quote meant that men couldn't be women. Uh-huh. I agree. You can't. Yet, if you look at those three steps of, of moral reversal, that is where we are. 
We see in that moral reversal just a, a decay of society. And Jesus says, you are to be the preservative in society, combating the moral decay. So what are we preserving? I mean, isn't that a good question? If we're preserving something, the question then is, what are we preserving? Well, we're not preserving tradition. We're, we're not preserving one culture over another. What we're preserving is, thus says the Lord. That's what we're preserving. The moral laws that God has given that transcends tradition, culture, time, and every other thing that we break down society and history into. We're preserving His moral laws. The moral laws found in Genesis 1-2. through 2. I told you when we studied Genesis that that was so fundamentally important. Because in hearing that statement about the University of Pennsylvania swimmer and hearing that statement about Adele, what are they attacking? They're attacking the fundamental moral law of Genesis 1 and 2, male and female, he created them. Right? We now call it traditional marriage. Or in Genesis 2, it was called a male shall leave his home and marry a woman. And that, that was it. There was no adjective needed for marriage. That is what we are trying to preserve. God's biblical moral laws. All right? Some of them, we don't have an issue. Well, even now, we're having a harder issue with thou shalt not steal. All right? We preserve, you know, adultery is bad, lying is bad, covering is bad. The, the, the works of the flesh are bad. Instead, we want to preserve that living by the fruit of the Spirit is better than by living by the lust of the flesh. We want to preserve the truth that God's moral law is good for you and will bring about a better life for you. That is what we are working to preserve. And as we work to preserve that, we're also called to be a preventative, which is the opposite of preservation. A preventative is used to keep something from taking hold and growing, right? And sometimes salt was used in this manner. I wanted to use the illustration about um, Hannibal or Rome. I think y'all have all heard the story where um, Rome salted Carthage, the lands around it. Well, apparently that actually didn't happen. <laughs> but it did happen in the Bible. You go back to Deuteronomy 29, 23, and it says, When the people abandon the covenant of God, God will send brimstone and salt so that nothing can be sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout. And then in Judges 9.45, Abimelech was ruler of Israel. And when he went into battle against the city of Shechem, after he defeated Shechem, he raises the city and sows the ground with salt. Why? So that that salt is a preventative to keep things from being planted in there and growing back. Creates a, a less fertile environment to plant crops because for the city to come back, what they're going to need is crops to feed the people. And so it's a preventative. As, as believers and as we're salt, we should create a less fertile environment for sinful attitudes and actions to grow. 
I know we don't like to be thought of as the people who don't do things, right? I don't drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do, right? We, we don't... Some people remember that old joke. Right? We, we don't like to be thought of those people. But you know what? As a believer in Christ, as salt in this world, when you walk into a place, when you walk in there, your very presence should change the attitudes, the actions, and the speech of people around you. It's perfectly okay to walk into a room and somebody go, well, we shouldn't do that. Gary's here. Put your name in the blank. Oh, here, let me tell you. Oh, no, I can't tell you that joke. She just walked in. She's a believer and she doesn't like. That's fine. We should rejoice in that because in that moment, you're being the preventative that God has told you to be. Remember a minute ago when I said when Jesus says, you are salt, that it has two presuppositions, and the first was we're in a world decay. Well, here's the second one. The second one is that as God has God's established constraints against decay in the world, home, family, marriage, government, fall underneath that common grace to restrain evil and decay today. However, and this is the second point, the most powerful restraint given to a decaying world is God's own people. The most powerful restraint against evil are people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The most powerful restraint of evil in this community should be Red Bank and all of us who make it up. You go somewhere, oh, we shouldn't do that. They remember at Red Bank and they don't, they wouldn't do that. We're preventing sin from flourishing. We're preventing and restraining evil. That's what we do as salt. Third, it's an antiseptic. We should be an antiseptic. Salt has great cleansing abilities. Right? You got a cut on your hand, you, you know it. When I was working in construction, I was on a job site one day. And he, he cut his finger. He was cutting metal. And those of you who know how to cut metal for uh, uh, windows and things like that to put up, you know, you know how you put it in, in there and, and you cut it and everything. And, and his razor blade slipped. And I was like, you need to go to the hospital. And he's like, no, I'm not going to the hospital. You know, construction people sometimes are not the brightest in the bunch. I said, you need to go to the hospital. He walks over to his truck, and to this day, I don't know why he had a container of salt in his truck. It's it for maybe this reason. He takes it, and he pours it all on the wound, and then takes the best Band-Aid ever made, known to mankind, electrical tape, and tapes his finger up. Hey, if you've ever been an electrician, electrical tape will stop anything from bleeding. And he tapes his finger up, and I'm sitting here going, hmm. Uh, there's infection, um, you know, you're going you're to lose that finger. Three days later, his finger, you can tell it's been cut, but it's all right. It acted as an antiseptic. It, it cleansed the wound so that it would heal. Ezekiel 16.4, there's an interesting verse. 
When God is speaking, he's talking about Israel's faithfulness. He says, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothing. I never rubbed any of my six children with salt. Okay? However, that was a leading antiseptic medical treatment at that time. They would rub salt all over the baby. Yeah, it probably stung, and that, that little baby probably cried a lot. But what are they doing? For people who back then couldn't look underneath the microscope and see a germ, they didn't know what was happening, but they knew that if they put the salt on there, that it would give the child a much better chance to live. Now, we know today what's going on, because we know what germs are. And for that brief moment of pain that that child probably went through, the point was not to just inflict pain, but the point was to bring healing. Right? The, the, the sting, then you, you deal with it, but you know you're going to be healed on the other side. So what, what does it mean for a believer? How, how are we... It's supposed to be an antiseptic. Well, quite frankly, it, it, it means this. When you tell people to stop sinning. Now look, I, 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 I was going to put be salty here, but I thought people would take that way in the wrong way. It's not being rude. It's not being crass. It, it's not being ugly. But it's looking at a person and going, hey, what you're doing is a sin. You need to stop. Now, from experience, and I know no one has had that experience except for me, when somebody tells you that, it stings. It hurts because, you, why, why? I'm not a sinner. I don't, right? I grumble, y'all don't. But they come, we come and we tell people, hey, look, I love you. You need to stop this. You need to repent. And it's going to sting but if you will do it, it's going to bring healing. I'm willing to cause you a little bit of pain now so that you will be healed and have a better life later. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I want to bring your attention to something else real quick. You know what another healing material was in the ancient world? Honey. Right? Anybody like honey? I like honey. Used it the other day in French toast. Gives French toast just a great extra flavor. You ever had a cut on your hand when you had some honey drizzle on it? You don't know. You know why? It doesn't hurt. It soothes, right? Honey soothes. You put a, you know, you know, you put it on a cut. It's going to soothe that cut. It's not going to hurt. Do I need to draw? Do I need to explain the the, the illustration? We're not called to soothe people in their sins. We're not called to say, it's all right, you keep doing that. You're going to be fine. We're called to be salt. A little bit of a sting. Because if you just soothe, if you just soothe somebody in, your, in their sins, are they going to stop? If anybody ever came up to you when you were in a sin and they looked at you and said, just keep doing what you're doing, everything's going to be fine, would you have stopped? 
No. We stop not when we're soothed. We stop when we get a little bit of a sting. So we need to be that antiseptic. Fourth, seasoning. Right? Salt seasons. That's, that's how we use it. It brings about the flavor. Salt is a, salt's a really interesting compound when you think about it. In that a little bit of salt will bring out the flavor of whatever you salt, but too much, all you taste is salt. Right? We like potatoes that are salted just right. You, you know, you got sprinkle, stir, taste, sprinkle, stir, taste, sprinkle, stir, taste. Oh, that's it. But if you get to that, that's it, and you go one more sprinkle, stir, taste, it's like, ah, too much salt. <laughs> it provides just a little bit of flavor. Under the definition of seasoning in Merriam-Webster, it uses the word zesty. Right? Christians should be zesty. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't be miserable. We should not be the most miserable people in the room. Well, Gary, didn't you just say that when you walked in a room, it's going to change the behavior? Yeah, but not for the better, for the good. You walk in the room, they should be, they should be happy to, to see you. Because being a believer in Christ, you season the world around you and you make it a better place and people enjoy it more. Right? You go back through, through history and you look at some of the greatest musical compositions and some of the greatest art ever. It was written by people who were, they, they may not have been believers, but even in that moment, their music was pointing people to Christ and that music. Right? Handel's Messiah. Right? We, we think of the Sistine Chapel. Things that are directing us to God and bringing, bringing seasoning into our lives. Why? Because Jesus says, I've come to give you not just life, but abundant life. And if we have abundant life, we should not be grumpy, miserable, unhappy people. We don't need to be the people sitting in church like this. Thank you. None of you are sitting that way this morning. Brad, uncross your arms. I'm looking at the camera, but I can see you. Right? We should be seasoning. We should season our world, season our communities. We bring seasoning to, to, to the world. Then lastly, this one. And it kind of ties in uh, to seasoning, and that is thirst. Salt makes you thirsty. It, it, it just does. You remember, I guess, I don't think you do it anymore, but you played sports years and years ago. You take salt packets, and, and the reason you took the salt was to force you to drink I've always wondered about that. I was like, why not just go get something to drink? Um, but anyway, salt makes you thirsty. So when people see us living the beatitude life, when people see us being patient, being obedient, being loving, when people see us living out the marks of being a disciple, when people see us get devastating news and they still see joy and peace in our lives and they see us in the midst of a chaotic and sinful world continuing doing what God has called us to do and they look at our lives and go, why don't you react this way? That is you creating thirst in that other person because they want to know what you have. They want to know why you can behave this way. Even if they don't know that Jesus is the answer, they know that there is something different about you. 
And you're creating that thirst in them. And it leads to opportunities to tell them, well, the reason I live this way, the reason I can demonstrate these marks of, uh, of peace and these marks of, uh, of, of being meek and humble and loving is because those marks are an indicator that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you confess Him as Lord and Savior, you will be able to live that same way. It creates a thirst and people around us. Because the quality of life, the abundant life that we live, is not because of who we are and what we do, what we have, what we drive, where we live, where we work, or who does or does not know us. The quality of life that we live and the abundant life that we live is just, it comes because we are redeemed believers by Jesus Christ. And that makes us different. And it makes the world thirst. Now, our prayer should be as they feel thirsty and we confront them with their thirst, that they repent of their sins. Because sometimes when people are thirsty and they hear of why, they don't want it. But that thirst has been created, and it gives us opportunity to share. Then lastly this morning, believers are to be distinctive in the world. At the very end of the verses, Jesus issues a warning, says not to lose our saltiness. How does salt not be salt? It's really weird. It is, it's a contradiction. You can't have unsalty salt. You don't believe me? Next time you're at a restaurant, ask for some unsalty salt. Let the waiter or the waitress look at you like, man, this person's lost their mind. I mean, salt is so stable of a substance that many salt mines are thousands of years old. You know why? Because a thousand years ago it was salt. You know what it is today? It's still salt. It doesn't change. So how in the world do we lose our saltiness? Well, the only way for salt to lose its saltiness is for the salt to be corrupted by impurities. You go home this afternoon and you take a handful of salt and then you walk outside and you grab a handful of dirt and you mix the two together. You've just ruined your salt. Because ain't nobody going to sprinkle that in their potatoes. It's lost its ability to be salty. It doesn't work anymore. So we are called to be distinctive in the world by not losing our, our saltiness, and we don't lose our saltiness because we remain faithful to Christ. We tie this all together with Leviticus 2.13. Leviticus 2.13, uh, God is revealing to Moses how to make offerings. And he says, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. He says this, You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Plus about this salt of the covenant. Tells them to mix salt with, with, their, with their offerings. Now, y'all have heard of covenants, right? We've talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about the Davidic covenant. We've talked about the Mosaic, the New, right? The Noahic covenant. Anybody ever heard of the Salt covenant? Simply put, in ancient times, when two people would enter into a covenant, they would do one of two things. Because they didn't have a notary. They didn't have somebody with a stamp. 
They didn't go down to the local bank to get it, you know, stamped and notarized. So they would mix salt together, either through their personal salt boxes and sprinkle a little bit of grain in each box and mix it up, or they would have a meal in which the meal was sprinkled with salt. It was a symbolic way of saying, I am now giving you my word. The idea being, if I could remove my salt from your salt or take back the salt that we ingested, then the covenant could be broken. Jesus, or God, speaking in Leviticus, says, look, sprinkle salt on your offerings. The truth that he is trying to convey to his people were, remain faithful to me. We're going to enter into a covenant together. Sprinkle a little salt on there. And just as you couldn't remove your salt from somebody over here you made a covenant with to purchase land or an animal, you can't remove the salt from the covenant that I've made with you. Be faithful. When we entered into the new covenant with Christ, when we became redeemed, we were essentially, at, at, at that point, entering into the salt covenant with God. Where Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem you of your sins. Now, he says to us, go and be faithful in your life on this earth. Go live out your life demonstrating to the world the marks of being a disciple. That is how we don't lose our saltiness. Because the moment we intermingle with the world, the, the moment we take in destructive philosophies that are, that are uh, antithetical to God's word and to his morals, we have nothing to contribute to society. Quote, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. See, if, if we're not different from the world, we have no message. We have no hope. We have no abundant life. We have nothing to offer anyone. Because if we lose our saltiness, we go from being distinct from the culture to being nothing more, as Jesus says here, something that you sprinkle out on a path and then trample over. We keep our saltiness, we retain our influence as we are distinctive from the world and give the world something that the world does not offer them. And that is redemption from their sins and eternal life in heaven with the one who saved us. What a tragedy it would be for us to give up our influence. And it's so important that Jesus makes sure that we know whatever you do, don't give it up. Remain faithful. Don't let any corrupting thoughts destroy your influence. Believers, when you leave today, be the salt that Christ has said that you are. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.